This is part two of our coverage of Full Gear. No effort will be made to acclimate you to part two. You should have listened to part one first. There's going to be a beep for my satisfaction. This is not a service to you for me. There's going to be a beep, and then it's right into part two, like we never stop talking. Get ready for it. No, I don't want to beep. Here it comes. Because my dog hates the fucking beep, and I don't want him to be upset. Can it be like a nice chime? (sighs) Jesus Christ. For you, Bob, because this is your podcast, let's make it a chime. Thank you. But there's going to be a chime, and that's it. No other accommodations will be made for those who have not listened to part one. It's already on the feed. It's already available. What if it was a barnyard animal sound? Like a like a like a duck, like a cow. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you think your dog would prefer that? I mean, I'd prefer that. I don't think my dog has any strong feelings one way or the other about ducks. So the truth comes out. This is for you because you. No, the no the beep is playing the to- role of the hypothetical listener. You want to be coddled and i'm saying no this is part two you should have listened to part one first you should have already skipped over this anyone who is listening to this you have failed yourself you should have been like oh this is for the people who didn't fucking listen to part one first i'll skip this part i'll get to the real podcast so for those of you who are still here feel bad about yourselves this is on you you're about to get a chime thanks to bob's kind intercession then straight in the fucking deep end So here you go. Chris is new here. You should feel amazing about yourself. Pat yourself on the back. You're super cute. Your hair looks amazing today. And you've done a good job about everything. This is unusable. Disagree. I think it's great. I think it's fine. Conveys all the info. It's all that we wanted. And I let you get the last word, which is how you know that we were doing a bit. I mean, true. If this was a conversation... There would be, like, foam at the corners of your fucking mouth. Be like, okay, all right. (laughs) Picking up after Soraya's barn burner against Britt Baker. Yeah. No, look, they sent the right woman for that job because getting a decent match out of Soraya was like pulling fucking teeth. Ah! Oh, somebody was saving that one. <laughs> we go to a hype package for our next match. Wardlow versus Samoa Joe versus Powerhouse Hobbs for the TNT Championship. Yum. It's not really worth recapping the story. Basically, these three want to fight each other. We do get to see Hobbs walking around the streets of his neighborhood talking about how Joe and Wardlow couldn't survive out here, which on the one hand, I'm always a fan of seeing wrestlers express character by doing things out in the world. But it's always such a weird contrast when only one wrestler in a feud brings it up. Like, are we meant to believe that Wardlow has a home? Do we think he has a neighborhood? Are we meant to think that he wakes up in his suburban home in his apartment and like shouts his way. Is this a real, the teachers sleep at the school thing? There's <laughs> like. Exactly. Oh, the other wrestlers, they sleep at work. But Hobbs has a house and a family. Exactly. He comes into work. Wardlow crawls out from under the ring in his singlet and is like, okay, I'm ready to go. This is all that I do. And Hobbs is like, do you not have bills or anything? And he's like, no, no, I am a wrestling troll. I sleep under the bridge. There was somebody in NXT whose their thing was they were lived under the ring and it was very sexy because he was a serial killer and it was very romantic. No? 
He stalked a lady. All of the podcasts you do should have a let's unpack that segment. It's very important for listeners to be able to deal with everything that you bring, Bob. But let's put it aside for now. Let's put the sexy serial killers out of our mind. Dexter Loomis, I have this shirt with him and Indy. It's very hot. This is the best wedding. I'm sure they're very happy together. If they're still at NXT, God knows what's happened. If I say it loud enough, maybe it'll take. Match number six, Wardlow versus Samoa Joe versus Powerhouse Hobbs for the TNT Championship. Powerhouse Hobbs enters first, and I would never have expected this man to wear a singlet. Who would fuck up this body shape with clothing? Listen, Bob. Yeah? This reminds me of another young talent who never achieved his greatest success despite all his charisma until he realized that his silhouette was his trademark and he started steering into it. That young talent's name? Back then, he went by SpongeBob Normal Pants. (laughs) Next to enter is Samoa Joe, whose silhouette is on point. Yeah. (laughs) And whose music is great. And whose entrance video is fire-themed, similar to Luchasaurus's. I'm not going to imply that Samoa Joe killed the dinosaurs. I'm just saying, if he had, imagine the promos. No remorse. No. Fuck those dinosaurs. (laughs) No. Samoa Joe's killed so many people and has never thought twice about it. He's like, who? (laughs) Samoa Joe's amazing. Wardlow gets the Goldberg treatment a little bit. We see him backstage climbing the stairs to the entrance ramp before we see him make his proper entrance. The crowd chants Wardlow, also reminding me of Goldberg. And I have nothing else to say about him, also reminding me of Goldberg. Thank you. Wardlow is garbage and I fucking cannot stand him. Ugh. He's so tedious. As the match begins, commentary is killing it, establishing the differences among these three weird-shaped men. JR says Wardlow made a, quote, young man's mistake, turning his back on Joe to touch all of this off. Meanwhile, Excalibur points out that judging by body language, Samoa Joe is the most comfortable going into this match uh, because of his experience. Mm -hmm. And also, JR puts over Hobbs as a future champion, with the only question being whether he's there yet. Bob. Yeah. Storytelling. (laughs) Actual storytelling. They're telling it. Okay. Of these three weird shapes, you have the chance. Now, I'm not going to say like you give up your own shape, but like you can switch into like, you know, this is your other morph, if you will. Which of these shapes are you like, yeah, I would feel cool or whatever. I'd be down to be in this shape as like my other shape. My fucking round weekend shape. Wardlow is boring. Definitely not him. Definitely not Wardlow. I like he's a weird shape, but like within the normal, you know, realm of wrestler shapes. Yeah, he looks like a fucking person, but nothing. It is hard to choose between Powerhouse Hobbs and Samoa Joe. Yeah. I have to say, though, that Samoan body shape has always appealed to me as like, yeah, it's one of those like. How would your life be different if you were shaped like this, if you looked like this? And I think that is like more powerful and specific and less kind of coded than Hobbs. I think Hobbs to the layperson, it's going to be like, oh, a big muscular guy. Mm -hmm. There's a dude who works out, not really understanding the nuances. To the wrestling fan, it's like, oh, Hobbs is a weird shape, Mm -hmm. even among all these weird shapes. But, you know, to the layperson, it's just like whatever muscle guy. A Samoa Joe, I think everybody understands that, you know. I mean, 
one of the best perks is that you get that walk. That fucking swagger. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, you're just going, I just got to buy oatmeal, but I'm going to walk like my dick is too big for me to navigate this fucking aisle. What a powerful move. You're like, maple or blueberry? Like, swagger, swagger, swagger. Never has an anatomy dictated a swagger since Oswald fucking Cobblepot. Samoa Joe, absolutely. Let me be Samoa Joe shaped. Electively. Yeah. I mean, also, Samoa Joe, way more fun to, like, get a piggyback ride from. 100% way more fun. I think so. Samoa Joe could be one of the things to ride on a merry-go-round. <laughs> For the listener, Bob is making a tongue motion, uh, a sort of yum-yum tongue motion. Um, <laughs> I know. I was like, yeah, ride that merry-go-round. <laughs> I'm sorry. Samoa Joe is like the music alone. The music alone is like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ. He's so goddamn hot. The whole presentation. But you know what he does for a living, Bob? I don't know if you're aware of this. He's a wrestler. So let's talk about wrestling. We get a three-way stare down and trash talk to start. But Wardlow proves he's never heard of foreplay by simply punching Joe and Hobbs rather than posturing for another five minutes. Yep. As though he has never seen wrestling. Wardlow follows Joe outside and beats him down. But as soon as Joe's down, Hobbs takes advantage by blindsiding Wardlow and taking control. In the ring, Hobbs hits a delayed suplex on Wardlow to show off his strength. Joe rolls in and chops Hobbs, but Hobbs takes Joe down too. To cheers. The crowd is up for this. As we're going to see, this match conveys that these three men are all monsters by showing that at any given time, one of them can dominate the other two. Mm. Like when they're on a roll, the other two can't stop them, which is very effective. Storytelling? Storytelling. I know we're doing a bit, but for real, storytelling. Okay, okay. They're not like regular shaped wrestlers whose triple threat matches consist mostly of two people fighting at a time while the odd wrestler out lies in a heap (laughs) incapacitated sometimes for 10 minutes or more by being pushed into a folding table. (laughs) Hobbs stays on top for a while, clubbing Wardlow and hitting a suplex on Joe, which I incorrectly identified as an exploder until Taz clarified on commentary that Hobbs tried an exploder but corrected to a modified T-bone suplex. Taz, your commentary is for one person, and it is me. Thank you. <laughs> Did you have a little senpai moment? Absolutely. You, you do not know how big a fucking Taz mark I was back in the day. Oh. <gasps> you didn't see. Okay, Bob. Yeah. Departing from the outline. Kurt Angle. Yeah. Brand fucking new. Okay. Olympic athlete, Kurt Angle. Did he have hair? Yes. Okay. On a winning streak. Okay undefeated here comes this fucking goober into our attitude era drinking milk oh saying his prayers eating his vitamins nerd beating everybody <gasps> then comes out and then beep 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 the fucking taz theme hits it's taz's debut and he fucking chokes kurt angle out fuck yeah I love Taz. I hate what WWE did to Taz, but I love Taz. And it is like, I still have that affection. When I see his face on commentary for AEW, I'm still like, oh, Taz. So different from everyone else. The fucking human suplex machine. Back then, we didn't stand for people in the 90s. We didn't have that (laughs) word yet. We didn't know what that feeling was. But 
something was happening between me and Taz. Aww. And I do still feel it. I like Taz a lot. I've never seen a Taz match, but I want to see a Taz match now. We'll do it on a, like a, a watch party or something. Okay. You've got to see Taz mix it up. It's... Am I going to fall in love? You might. Okay. Hobbs is working over Wardlow in the corner when he yells, do something at him, which turns out to be a big mistake. Wardlow could have gone this whole match without remembering that he's supposed to do things. But Hobbs has awakened the giant. Sounds like Wardlow. <laughs> Hobbs whips Wardlow into the corner, then whips Joe. But Wardlow dodges Joe. Joe then runs back to Hobbs on the attack so that both men are in position for Wardlow to climb to the turnbuckle and dive onto them with a huge spinning leap from the top rope. It's a corkscrew senton, I think, which just means that he turns as well as flips and hits his targets back first. Mm. We say senton in wrestling instead of falling on someone back first because senton sounds like less of an embarrassing accident. Wardlow takes control with headbutts and a lariat, followed by a top rope senton on Hobbs, though Joe hits a senton on Wardlow right after that. At the bottom of the weird-shaped pileup, Hobbs manages to hurt his elbow, as JR points out on commentary. Hobbs dumps Wardlow out of the ring, then Joe beats on Hobbs in the ring for a while, notably with a corner face wash, which is a scrape of the boot against the face that Joe apparently picked up from Shinjiro Otani, and commentary mentions that Otani suffered a recent injury. I don't know whether using this move was an intentional homage from Joe, but it's a great occasion to direct people to Shinjiro Otani. Not a guy who made a huge splash in the United States, although he was notably the first WCW Cruiserweight champion, but a major Japanese star with great matches against stars that you will recognize. Look up Otani versus Wild Pegasus, or on a team with Wild Pegasus. Wild Pegasus is the Japanese name for Chris Benoit. Otani, a hell of a worker. If you've never watched Japanese wrestling, this would be a great in. And uh, winner of the J-Crown. If you want to go watch a J-Crown, he has an ongoing rivalry with Jushin Thunder Liger. Go check that out. Shinjiro Otani. Let Joe's homage guide you into the world of Otani. Because it's amazing. Anyway, Joe ends up with a face lock on Hobbs, which he holds for a long time until Wardlow finally sees fit to quote-unquote ambush the bored Samoa Joe and his bored victim with a shoulder tackle. (laughs) According to commentary, when Joe falls, that's effectively a DDT on Hobbs. Fellow pedants, save your energy. This is not the least convincing excuse for a DDT we're going to see tonight. All right, but you've put a flag on that. I expect you to let us know whenever you see a worse DDT. Oh, it is fucking highlighted, Bob. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Wardlow beats on Hobbs on the outside for a while and is engaged in a big dumb punch off at ringside. Let me take a moment to discuss the rules of the big dumb punch off. There are a number of these throughout the card. In the big dumb punch off, one wrestler punches the other uh-huh. and the other wrestlers honor bound to punch them back in a very specific way. Yeah. Nobody blocks. No. Nobody evades. That's for cowards. Of course. Right, right. The ethos of pro wrestling dictates we're going to stand here in one spot. As though this were kind of like a D&D combat. Like, I hit him with my sword. I hit him with my sword. I hit him with my sword again. Like that. You just hit each other as hard as you can right in the face, unguarded, repeatedly, until something else happens. Until fate intervenes. No, because these people are fucking morons because there's no bards. So that you kiss them on the tip of the nose. Mm. What are they going to do to that? No defense. Fucking helpless. Listen, sometimes somebody has taken the charismatic dickhead approach to their moveset, and that does happen. 
And we're going to see that later tonight. That um, Speaking of like planting the seed and then paying it off later, just wait. Anyway, there's a big dumb punch off, the first of many tonight at ringside, when Joe dives onto both men. We're going to get a lot of big dumb punch offs tonight. They seem particularly relevant here and important here because this match is so much about like ramming the big cool hot wheels into each other as hard as possible. These big shapes slamming against each other. Joe's able to capitalize on Wardlow for a minute, but Hobbs runs in full steam. Speaking of reckless Hot Wheels play and drives both himself and Joe into a barricade. Hobbs recovers and gets Wardlow into the ring and seems to be in control until Wardlow reverses into a powerbomb. And that's it for Hobbs. Wardlow hits one, two, three powerbombs on Hobbs before Joe runs in with a belt shot on Wardlow, hits him with a title belt, knocks him silly, then locks a coquina clutch onto Hobbs. Hobbs is already unconscious, or nearly so, so the referee has no choice but to award the match to Joe, making him the new TNT champion. Samoa Joe is now a double champion and backpedals out of the ring with a belt on each shoulder. His wily veteran status extending well beyond the match itself. A good wrestler wins matches. A great wrestler hangs around afterward to build B-roll for his next hype package. And that is what Samoa Joe is doing. Uh, Bob, you look like you have thoughts. Do you have thoughts? Uh, yeah, Google signed me out and I don't remember my password. Ah, of course. Incisive commentary, as always, from Megan Bob. <laughs> don't fucking act like you've never forgotten your goddamn password. Get off your fucking high horse. While Bob reclaims their identity, let's go backstage <laughs> to Tony Schiavone, who is interviewing Jericho. Accompanied by Jack Hager and Jack Hager's purple bucket hat. No, Jake. Jake. Is it Jake? Yeah. Why the fuck did they change his first name? I didn't ask them. They just did it. Okay. Maybe Jack was trademarked. Right, right. WWE. They own the name Jack. Look, I don't know what the fuck Vince McMahon is capable of. <laughs> All right. Let's say Jake. No, it is Tony Jake. Tony Schiavone. Don't act like it's not. So Jack, let's say his let's name say Jake. is it's fine. Jake. Okay, so let's say his name is Chris. Like it is Chris. But let's, say let's just for the arc for the sake of fucking argument. Let's say his name is Jake. Jericho is accompanied by Jake Hager <laughs> and Jake Hager's purple bucket hat. It's also Hager. Did I say Hager? You did. The better wrestler from the Final Fight series. Jake Hager and Jake Hager's purple bucket hat. <laughs> Shivani asks about Sammy Guevara's turn against Jericho earlier, but Jericho says that Guevara's ambitious, he's a future champion, and Jericho figured he'd try this, so it's fine. But Jericho is the best, etc., etc. Orange Cassidy shows up, accompanied by Danhausen, to issue a challenge for the ROH title on behalf of Tomohiro Ishii. Yeah! Jericho reminisces about knowing Ishii when the latter was a young boy in Japan and he carried Jericho's bags and he shined his shoes and implicitly he sucked his dick. Yeah. Jericho accepts the challenge, telling Ishii that his senpai is waiting. That's how I know about the implicit dick sucking. This is... Yes. Yaoi vibes all over. You know what? The Stone Pitbull, he can do so much fucking better. Like, there is so much dick in, like... All the other wrestling promotions in Japan, baby, baby, you could do better. Don't go back to that dick. This is how you know that you're listening to Next Wrestling Fan. This hyper-focused, like, listen, 
tights and fights we don't have room for fights these tights are stretched so fucking far every podcast that bob is on is an honorary hard choices and so of course we've got to talk about like i mean because it's part of the story yeah how good is jericho's dick is integral to the character motivation here of course we have to talk about it fortunately we have an expert i bet his dick is mid at best cannot argue anyway jericho accepts the challenge from ishii tells him his senpai is waiting jericho leaves and in his absence jack hager asks orange cassidy what's in your backpack orange cassidy pulls out his title belt and asks hager if he wants it challenging him to a match hager accepts and then gets defensive about his purple hat yes saying he likes it mm-hmm. megan bob can you please explain to me what's happening with jack hager's purple hat oh with jake hager's purple hat yeah for sure jake hager's purple hat <laughs> you're doing your best you're new here i know you don't go to the school it's fine so the jericho appreciation society has a real thing where they i don't know who's fucking paying for these outfits but they will often do like a group costume and there's quite a few of them and so they did a bunch of purple shit and he just kept wearing the bucket hat and has really made it a thing that he does and he doesn't wrestle a lot and he doesn't talk thankfully so like it's a gift that this is all he does is like hat based bullshit mm. so he'll show up wear the bucket hat occasionally do like light bucket hat shenanigans and then leave my view which is you know if he's going to be in my view this is the best case scenario also mean x says like your senpai is waiting yay or nay depends on the mean x mm. if i think about my meanest x mm -hmm. listen she's a piece of work but i would absolutely hit it <laughs> that's the truth <laughs> Wait, does the senpai thing come into it at all or no? It sure does. Okay, good, good. I mean, listen, she's the reason that I know so goddamn much about Sailor Moon. <laughs> she is an old school, like, okay, I can't talk about it anymore on a public podcast, but let me just say, senpai, it's a powerful sex word. It can be deployed in oh. a lot of different ways. I don't know that Jericho is the best situated to deploy it in this situation, <laughs> oof, but oof, no. just while we're know. here... Senpai, I have had the word senpai said to me and had feelings, so I know that it can work. Yeah, you've got that look about you. Next up, we get a hype package for Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal <laughs> versus Sting and Darby Allen, as though we could ever feel hype about this. The hype package doesn't clarify much about the storyline, but I guess Darby used to work with some people who now work with Jarrett, and I guess Jeff Jarrett is the last outlaw, quote unquote. Seems like a stretch. For a near 60-year-old chicken shit heel who was born into management. But in fact, Jarrett did pivot his own wrestling promotion from wrestling to multi-level marketing at one point. So he's kind of a crook. Oof. Oof. Just not the cool kind. Ooh. Yikes. Anyway, in case you haven't heard, it's about to be showtime. Possibly for the last time, depending on which old man's shouting you want to believe. I mean, yeah, they old. Match number seven, Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett versus Sting and Darby Allen. Tony Schiavone 
relieves JR on commentary. He, of course, is the only choice to call this match because he was around back in the year 2000 when Jeff Jarrett and Sting had like C plus matches against each other. <laughs> so he has to come back for this occasion. As Jay Lethal enters first to some very weird music, I don't know if death ska is a genre, but that's what this sounds like. Yeah. Jeff Jarrett then walks out to a dramatic video of Red Skies. You think you're going to get some real cool shit, like late era Undertaker shit. Like, here I am, I'm old, but I've still fucking got it. And then out comes Jeff Jarrett in the same generic gear, the same guitar, the same tired hack in 19 goddamn 70s Ric Flair ripoff bullshit as ever. You may object. Doesn't it freshen things up a little bit? That he comes to the ring with a cadre of fake stings clad in black hoodies and sweatpants? No, Jeff Jarrett already used a bunch of fake stings against Sting in a match 23 years ago. Oh, wow. That match is old enough to like, oh my God, that match is graduated from college. Yeah, that match is a full adult. Yeah. It's been a couple of years. There are people in the prime demographic of AEW who were not born when the match this calls back to occurred. AEW! (laughs) (laughs) Is this an homage? Or have these two been wrestling so long that we've crossed the horizon of eternal recurrence? And the repetition of this idea is an inevitable but meaningless product of time cyclic nature. I don't know. But either this feud or time-bound existence itself or both are boring. You know what? I am so much more excited for this match if it's like a waiting for Godot situation where it's like, no, we must play this out forever because this is what existence (laughs) is. No, look, you're the one that they're looking for here. Truly, the existentialism mark is the one this match is for. I do love Beckett. But for everyone else, pretty rough. Commentary does its best to put over this match as extremely special. What's more special than something that has happened regularly for over two decades, as Tony Schiavone points out? And they try to put over Jeff Jarrett as, like, very dangerous for some reason. He's in great shape for someone who's almost 60. He's deadly with that guitar. I would love to learn how you train to become more deadly with a guitar, unless I have to watch Jeff Jarrett do it, in which case, pass. Yeah. Anyway, the lights go down and a spotlight hits a body bag at the top of the entrance ramp. Tony Schiavone clarifies with the commentary line of the night, quote, well, there's a body bag. Jay Lethal and the fake stings approach the body bag. But when some moderate intensity fog shoots out from the pyro apparatus, they cower like Saturday morning cartoon henchmen. And Darby Allen runs out with a skateboard to beat them down in the confusion. (laughs) Darby then approaches the ring where Jeff Jarrett is waiting for him cautiously little knowing that one of the fake stings isn't a fake sting at all but the real sting fuck wearing sweatpants instead of proper wrestling gear because that's what the character would do not because he wants to wear sweatpants tonight Jarrett does a double take when he notices sting behind him then begs off nonsensically as the bell rings. What the fuck? What? Before we get started, Sanjay Dutt came out with Jay Lethal. You're making a face. You're making a face. Where do you think this is going? Because you clearly have thoughts about where this is going. Please go ahead. I want to bully him so much. 
I want to bully him and fuck him and then bully him some more. He's so goddamn adorable. I bet I could throw him. Yeah. He looks very throwable. I think I'm probably taller than him. I bet I could throw him. Sorry. I Look, he was wearing a really... Naked Bob is a sexy shark who only eats the smallest anchovy and fucking savors it. That's who Megan No, is. I don't eat... Look, I'll eat fucking anything in this ocean. But, like, I have a taste for a tiny anchovy. <laughs> also, he's wearing real cute shoes. I take your word for it. I don't notice shoes. As I learned in high school, when someone was like, there was this girl. Yeah, of course. Her name was Julia. She was like, your shoes are blah, blah, blah. And I was like, people notice shoes? <laughs> I was, my mind was blown. Wow. Wow. That must have been a rough day. Oh, yeah. It absolutely was. Did you spend the rest of the week looking at everybody's shoes going, fuck, what the? <laughs> Am I supposed to be up on this? I spent the rest of the day hoping that I would eventually hit that. <laughs> but also, in the back of my mind was like, the shoe thing, though. I'll table this for later. Listen, let's not get distracted. There's a body bag on the ramp. Oh, yeah. Sting and Darby beat down Jeff Jarrett with strikes together. Lethal runs in to make the save by hitting Sting, but Sting whips him and then pushes him off the top turnbuckle onto the apron for a very ugly bump. This looks like it hurt, this falling onto the apron. Yeah. And that settles it. Sting has marked Lethal as his prey and will walk and brawl him into the crowd while Darby will walk and brawl Jarrett. From here, we cut back and forth furiously between the two fronts of this epic conflict. Darby moves Jarrett toward the ramp. Sting throws a plastic trash bin. <laughs> Darby suplexes Jarrett on the outside, then brings out a ladder. Sting finds Lethal straddling a barricade and kind of jiggles him up and down to hurt his balls. <laughs> Darby dives from the ladder on the entrance ramp toward Jarrett's prone form lying far below but is caught in midair by the giant Satnam Singh held in a crucifix and thrown onto the ramp. Yep. Sting appears to be lost. He's just kind of walking around in the crowd. I don't see Jay Lethal anywhere. <laughs> Look, he's very old. It's been a long week. <laughs> At last, Jay Lethal, never one to leave a barricade untraversed, sort of voluntarily steps over a barricade onto the edge of a balcony so that Sting can whack him and make him fall off into the waiting arms of Satnam Singh. However, perhaps jealous of the cozy-looking giant's gentle attentions, Sting makes a daring yet limp, catch me, daddy, dive onto Singh. Yeah. And everybody falls over. Yay or nay to 60-year-old men jumping off of things that they probably shouldn't be jumping off of. Nay. And I will say this loudest to a non-60-year-old man, Shane McMahon. Listen, mm -hmm. if you can't wrestle, then don't take a huge fucking stuntman bump and pull focus mm. away from the wrestling. Ooh, It's deleterious to the product. And I don't know how to tell you this, except I have the old WWF role playing game. Mm -hmm. And in the WWF role playing game, great pains are taken to make sure that we understand that people who don't wrestle, including ex wrestler managers, mind you, they don't wrestle. Because they don't wrestle. They can't wrestle. Either they're mm. too old or they're out of practice. It is essential to the product that we believe that wrestlers are professionals who know how to wrestle and other people don't. Don't come out here as a manifestly elderly man and do the shit that current wrestlers are trying to do. Mm. Because it makes them look weak and it makes you look weak. 
and it makes it seem like we are observing a vanity product produced for the benefit of should-be retirees who want to relive their glory days at the expense of working professionals. I feel very strongly about this. If you can still wrestle, act like you can't. It's fine. There's a grand tradition. Act like you can't do it. Come out here, get beat up. Do a Mick Foley. Come out here and get your ass kicked. That is your role. Don't be Sting. If you take no other message away from this podcast, don't be Sting. Don't be the old man who comes back and is like, oh, no, everybody loves Sting. Everybody buys into the fact that Sting is some kind of supernatural being. And so, well, despite the lack of any kind of world building or character building to support that. So let me just like Jay Lethal. Who here is most promising? Come here and get beat up by Sting. Here, stand on top of this barricade. Okay, listen, Sonny, I can't. God knows I can't lift you, but (laughs) I'm going to put my hands under your arms. And if you could just kind of like jump up and down and crush your testicles against this barricade, it would make me look really strong, which will be great for the world championship program that they're building toward. Undoubtedly, with 60-year-old goddamn Sting. This will be great for the company, great for you, great for everybody. Thank you for those extensive thoughts. I agree. I think old men should probably not do things that are dangerous. I appreciate Arn Anderson for showing up and just being weird, but like not getting in the ring. Good job, old man. Arn Anderson fucking nailed it. He went on Hey EW with RJ City, did a great fucking interview. Everybody respects him. Did he bring a gun? No, he didn't. Okay, because he did some weird, like, he did a weird thing and basically told Cody, I'm not a baby, I would kill a man. And we're like, what the fuck, Arn Anderson? What the fuck? Listen, everybody knows. Everybody knows if you fuck with Arn Anderson, he's going to come with the fucking scissors. No. He seems like a man I would not want to be alone in a parking lot with, but not for like... The reasons that you might not want to be alone in a parking lot with a man, but like legit because he seems like he probably has a weapon. Anyway, a 60-year-old man has just crashed like a fucking meteorite into a seven-foot-tall giant. Naturally, Sting ends up in control after the collision. You know how you sometimes see on the road like a 30-year-old Ford Escort run headlong into a bus, like a school bus, total it? and then drive on its merry way (laughs) over the bus's fiery wreckage. Life is just funny sometimes. (laughs) One of these happens here. A 60-year-old man crashes into this giant and then just strolls on by while the giant lies there bleeding. Well, but he's got that face paint, so he's probably got supernatural powers. I mean, did you see him do that splash in the corner? Who but a supernatural being (laughs) could do that? You know what that didn't look like? A 60-year-old man. So you, you have to be right. Anyway, Sting walk and brawls Jay Lethal back to the ring where Jarrett has laid out Darby Allen and does his cheesy ass strut. Don't worry about updating your act, buddy. Just listen. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if it is broke, you know, whatever. It's wrestling. Who the fuck cares? Jarrett tags in Lethal who beats down Darby for a while until an exchange in the corner results in the two literally just bonking heads and falling over. Both men tag and Jay Lethal sells his ass off for Sting as Sting beats down both Lethal and Double J. Sting puts Jarrett in a scorpion deathlock and crouches down over him. He has never looked older. He looks like he is sitting down to eat his fucking oatmeal as he applies the scorpion deathlock. Sutton 
chokeslam Sting off of Jarrett, tagged Jay Lethal and Darby Allen, who engage in their own big dumb punch-off, followed by a big reversal sequence that finds Jay Lethal holding Darby up by the arms and Jarrett lining up a guitar shot. Mm. Naturally, Darby evades, but Jarrett stops short with the guitar. After decades of experience, he knows how not to hit his own friend with a guitar. But Darby momentarily fights both men. He goes up to the top turnbuckle, but when he does a coffin dive off the turnbuckle, Jarrett breaks the guitar on his back in midair, which looks very impressive. Hmm. Somebody should sign this guitar. I hope this guitar <laughs> has an unbelievably successful multi-decade career in wrestling because this guitar is really showing me something out here. I feel like this guitar is going to be out with an injury for a while after this. <laughs> Darby does a kip up and beats his chest like Sting. He throws strikes at Jarrett and Lethal, then Coffin splashes both of them. The giant comes in, but Sting catches him in a scorpion death drop position and with help from a Darby Allen coffin drop, which on the basis of this match is the only move that Darby Allen knows. This and skateboard. <laughs> we actually, in our household, we call him Skate Lad, and we refer to Sting as Skate Dad. <laughs> that is funny. I know, we're extremely hilarious people. Sting manages to hit a sloppy scorpion death drop on the giant. Darby dives on Jarrett on the outside. Meanwhile, Jay Lethal does a beautiful rebound handspring move towards Sting. And Sting, I want you to stop here and imagine the most extravagant air quotes. Sting catches Jay Lethal out of the handspring with what commentary assures us in vain is a scorpion death drop. Oof. I guess just anybody who hits their head on anything in the vicinity of Sting, scorpion death drop. He's at the grocery store. Somebody fucking slips in the frozen section. Hits their head on the freezer. Scorpion death drop. <laughs> per Tony Schiavone, that's a scorpion death drop. Darby finishes Lethal off with a coffin drop for the three count. And Team Face Paint celebrates as Sting struggles to his feet. A grandpa in a land of dads. He's doing his best. I mean, in terms of being an old ass man, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, he should go home. But like, if he's going to be there, he's trying. Yeah, I want to be clear that I'm not casting any aspersions on Jeff Jarrett or Sting for being old men trying to perform. I think they're doing a much better job than a lot of other people would do in their situation. Mm -hmm. The problem is the pro wrestling industry where old people whose names you recognize kind of outrank young people who could do their jobs. Oh, yeah, no, that's a mistake. I personally did not enjoy watching Jeff Jarrett wrestle Sting again, but that's just me. If this is super nostalgic for you and you love it, or if this is new to you, if you're someone who believes the things that Tony Schiavone says and you're like, legends, these two fucking legends clashing again, this is like Darth Vader versus Obi-Wan Kenobi in the first Star Wars when it was barely a lightsaber duel and they barely knew what a lightsaber was, but I can sort of backfill all the stuff to like super, it's great, it's great, it's perfect, it's the first lightsaber duel, it's great, and I'm cool because I think it's great, then, then sure. Fine. That is such a litmus test kind of question. Be like, call up somebody and be like, do you believe the things that Tony Schiavone says? And then be like, can I have your credit card number? Just for reasons. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> for me, with my level of skepticism toward Tony Schiavone, this match didn't do it for me. Well, it didn't do anything for me either. But I'm like, oh, I mean, Sting seems happy. Let him wrestle. Just like, could it not be on the pay-per-view, please? 
Or do the cinematic matches where he does a weird thing. That was fun. A hype package for Tony Storm versus Jamie Hayter emphasizes that Jamie is a rising star who's both physically powerful and increasingly popular. In an interview clip, Tony says that she's tough enough for the physical challenge of this match, but that it's going to be a personal challenge too because of her closeness with Jamie. Tony notes that people are noticing how strong and how beautiful Jamie Hayter is. Bob, possibly you can help me out because podcasting with you has made me lose all perspective. Is there subtext here? No, sadly. I mean, maybe. Boo. I can put some there. Do you want some? I can make some. Don't. I Look, you don't have to go out of your way. Just Look, have you eaten? I have stuff in the fridge. I can make something. Do you want an omelet? It's fine. It's look, fine. It's, okay. it's fine. I have bell peppers. I can omelet. chop something up. This can happen. Now you're like bell peppers. Like this is a thing you have to chop. This is passive aggressively. You're telling me. Don't make me fucking cook for you. Just just you can tell me straight out. It's fine. I can take it. Uh, During the pandemic, I think they were kind of like rooming together in the UK for a while and like fucking around and doing friend stuff. And it doesn't say that they fucked, but it also doesn't say that they didn't fuck. So, you know, I mean, probably they were around getting drunk in a fucking bed sit or whatever and they didn't have anything else better to do so probably they were fucking this makes sense to me tony storm had an only fans so i feel like on a certain level and just see if you can follow my logic here mm-hmm. if you've got a roommate yeah they're paying half of the rent yes who else is paying your rent your only fan subscribers mm-hmm. so if your only fan subscribers get to see your tits surely your roommate should get to see your tits yeah of course otherwise the better business bureau is gonna arrest you Yeah. It seems like something probably happened. I mean, I would assume that that's definitely what happened. Match number eight, Tony Storm versus Jamie Hayter. Hayter enters first in a little white fur coat. It's cute. Hair dyed white in the front. Gear with lots of straps. Yeah. Kind of a schoolgirl slash strong woman aesthetic. The overall effect is of an AI generated creator wrestler based on 1990s X-Men character designs. And I, for one, welcome our machine learning costume designer overlords. Mm-hmm. This is hot. Yeah. Next to enter is the interim women's world champion, Tony Storm, looking, as always, like a made-up rock star from an episode of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She holds the belt high as she approaches the ring, but Hater doesn't watch or acknowledge Tony's entrance, facing her corner and looking focused. As the match begins, the crowd chants for Hater, who points this out to Storm. And as the two open the match with a forceful but surprisingly technical lockup and counter wrestling sequence tony shivani runs down the backstory for those who may not know it that tony storm and jamie Hayter lived together became very close during the pandemic that was a tough time for wrestlers while tony tells us that the two know each other very well they show us in the ring by taking turns deftly and quickly evading each other's finishers stereo storytelling yay we're hearing it and we're seeing it at the same time this is very advanced Commentary mentions that this has been an unusually technical match so far for people with such personal beef, but that breaks down when Tony gets Hater on the apron, hip attacks her off of it, and for those of you who are not acquainted with move names, when I say hip, I mean butt. Oh, did she do the, was this the time whenever she did the slap on her ass before she did it? There's definitely a slap in the ass in this match. I don't know, I think it's in my notes where it happens, but she definitely does a butt attack here to knock Hater down. She follows up to beat up Hater at ringside. The time for hammerlocks has obviously passed. The women brawl at ringside, they use the barricade, the ring posts. 
to Nick's success. While Tony is back first against the ring post, Hater chops her repeatedly. And no sooner has Tony Schiavone pointed out how often this goes wrong than Tony ducks out of the way of the chop and Hater bangs her arm against the ring post. Tony Schiavone is, says something like, I'd avoid that myself. Look, I don't fucking roll your eyes because we have all been there where you're like fucking around and doing something and then you biff it and you're like, oh shit, that actually hurt a lot. Come on, you are not above this. It makes total sense that it hurts Jamie's arm as long as we don't consider the fact that this spot requires Jamie not to have watched any wrestling and Tony Schiavone reminds us of that in his role as the guy who is just about to figure out that wrestling is fake. Look, he's just here to help the wrestlers. I don't know why they don't take his good advice. <laughs> they clearly don't want to listen to his commentary. They never watched the show. This guy has been writing to management forever with subject lines like too many folding tables at events? Question <laughs> mark. Like, why do we keep bringing all these? You know what? Wrestling RPG. <laughs> but you play Tony Schiavone. Just <laughs> shock and indignation at all times. Just confusion and like, <laughs> look, this can't be happening. Simply unacceptable. <laughs> Chaos continues. Beautiful. We are all Tony Schiavone looking at the world like, oh, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> oh, wow. That's very humbling. You know what? Now I'm I want to buy him flowers now. I'm like, the kinship I feel is so painful. We'll go in together as a podcast community. Let's all chip in and buy Tony Schiavone flowers. Just be like. You're bad, but we are also bad. <laughs> Therefore, we love you. <laughs> Back in the ring, Hater flexes her muscles to cheers and suplexes Tony Storm repeatedly, then boot chokes her in the corner. When Storm tries to fight back, Hater kind of chops down at her, like chops a mud hole in her. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Hater goes on a long, dominant tear of offense here including ramming Tony's face into the mat, cocky covering her by crouching on top of her face, which is hot. Yeah. Choking Tony Storm against the bottom rope, which makes Tony Storm quack. Like, go back and listen. That is a goddamn barnyard quack. There are ass kickings, and then there are ass kickings so bad that you make barnyard sounds, and Tony Storm is deep in option two right now. That would be like a fun taunt, though. <laughs> like, get somebody in a choke or whatever and just be like... Fuck submission matches. Fuck that. Or like, I quit. No. <laughs> cowards. Match for cowards. This is a fucking, the cow says moo match. And so it's like your opponent, they get you in the fucking submission. You get to choose as the person like doing the move. You're like, okay, what sound does a goat make? And then the referee has to go like, <laughs> uh, and they're like, no, that's a sheep. And they're like, God damn it. It's so close. <laughs> I know. I am a fucking booking genius. Tony Khan, hire me. Hater is so dominant here that she finds time to hassle the referee, pushing his forehead and then shaking hands with him when he reprimands her, distracting him from the fact that she's standing on Tony's dorm's head. This is some fucking world of sport bullshit. I am. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's good shit. It's time for a big dumb forearm off. Hater looks strong, but when she comes off the ropes for a big strike, Tony leaps onto her with what is technically called a Thez press, but out of respect for the listeners, I won't call it that. I know you're scared of proper nouns. She, she just jumps on her and pummels Jamie with strikes on the mat. It's Tony's turn for offense. She hits a hip attack 
Yeah, this is the one with the butt slap. Yes, it is. And then a tornado DDT for a near fall. Okay, wait, no, time out. I just got to ask you real quick. Somebody's going to do a hip attack on you. Mm -hmm. Better or worse if they do the ass slap before they do it. Depends on the context. When you say that to me, what my brain produces is Asuka. And if she's doing it to me, I got to have that ass slap. Of course you do. Have to have it. Because she means it and she owns it. And I believe in her to like, this is the hip attack of a woman who gets it. From Tony Storm, listen, like you're here to work. Just fucking work. It's fine. I don't need, you know, theatrics. This thing that Tony Storm is doing to like tip the hand a little bit, like this is nothing for me. I don't really buy into Tony Storm. And so I feel like if she slapped her ass at me, I would feel like she didn't mean it and I wouldn't appreciate it. It would just be insulting. Do you take me for like a peasant? Yeah, like like if you're not into it, don't fake it. I don't need that. Like if you got to hit me with your butt, then fine. I understand like... But if you're just doing your job, act like you're just doing your job. I don't need all this. I kind of want every, like, all of them to do it regardless, because I think it's never the wrong thing. Like, imagine Samoa Joe doing that. Oh, <laughs> fuck. That'd be amazing. This gets us back to, like, Angelica Houston territory, where you simply cannot say, oh, this proves my point. Imagine Samoa Joe doing it. Imagine a man who is like no one else doing it. Fine, you win. Of course, I want Samoa Joe to slap his ass at me because I know that if he did it, he would do it convincingly and passionately. And I'd be like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Nobody slaps an ass like Samoa Joe. Okay. You know what? Hook slaps his ass at you, but doesn't really mean it. You still fucking want it, don't you? Yeah, you do. I can fucking see the look on your face. You're melting. You're like, I just want him to notice. <laughs> Actually, just ignore me. Just like, let me sniff your hoodie. Mega Bob, you are a menace. It's not enough that you have been the matchmaker to this sordid parasocial relationship. You've got to fucking rub it in. I have a reaction to this, but if I tell it to you, we're just going to have to cut it. So let's just leave it at that. You're right. You win. But it would be super hot, everybody, if Samoa Joe slapped his ass. Can we at Samoa Joe? Samoa Joe, get an OnlyFans. I want to watch you slap your ass and then do a hip attack on somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it's tony storm's turn for offense she hits a hip attack and then a springboard tornado ddt for a near fall jimmy hater pulls herself up to her feet with the ropes after that one and the two women fight over an irish whip they end up clutching each other's hands while they do a Aww. big dumb punch off that ends when tony nails hater with a desperation headbutt that knocks both wrestlers over tony lands on hater but hater kicks out before the ref can count the pin it was kind of romantic it was, and honestly, it was an effective false finish for me. Like, this is very much the way that, like, an old school Survivor Series or King of the Ring would have ended, where it was, like, full of people who are like, oh, look, I can't get pinned, brother. Like, and so there would always be, like, these double count outs, double KOs, et cetera, et cetera. It was very believable as a false finish. At this point, though, a woman named Rebel comes to ringside. Megan Bob, who is Rebel? Rebel is Britt Baker's... Minion? Uh-huh. She's a legit wrestler, but she does not really wrestle in AEW. I don't know. She's done some weird shit. There was a period of time, like, I think she got, like, fake injured. She might have gotten real injured. And then she had a crutch for a really long time, but she had a crutch, like, way past the point at which she needed the crutch. And, like, it just became a thing that she was doing to the point that they made merch of it that said, crutch is clutch, <laughs> you know, for the kids. And so she comes out and she'll like do minion shit to help out Britt Baker or, you know, 
Britt Baker's associates. So now that we all know who Rebel is, back in the ring, Tony Storm and Jamie Hayter treat us to season two of Big Dumb Forearm Off. Eventually, Hayter switches to high kicks and Storm switches to slaps, which is perhaps why Storm is the one who ends up with a bloody nose at the end of this exchange. Mutual clobbering ensues until Rebel nails Storm with a belt shot, comes up and hits her with the title belt, setting up a sliding lariat from Hater, but Storm kicks out, and we've officially entered the false finish portion of the match, which is, I think this is a very good match. Yeah, it's pretty good. The false finishes truly do go on and on, but in the moment, it's really good. Rebel argues with the referee, who very audibly asks, what are you doing on the apron? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And she has no good answer, even by pro wrestling referee standards. So the ref ejects Rebel, who throws back her head and screams in rage like she's been exiled from paradise. Oh, I popped for that because I was like, ooh, ooh, that's (laughs) the move to do. Like you're getting thrown out. Absolutely do like the Led Zeppelin album cover. 100% do that. So good. Storm tries to lock in a cloverleaf which is a kind of leg hold on Hater, but Hater grabs the bottom rope and then low bridges Storm with it when she charges in, which sends her tumbling to ringside. While Tony Storm is recovering at ringside, Britt Baker appears from nowhere and curb stomps Tony Storm onto the title belt, then tosses her into the ring. Hater hits the Storm Zero, but Storm kicks out. The match isn't over yet. Storm gets distracted by Britt Baker, falls prey to another big move, but again, when Hater pins her, she kicks out at two. To huge booze, by the way. This crowd is done with Tony Storm. Hater plays to the crowd who eat it up and chant her name. Hater pounds on Storm until she's more or less unconscious, while Britt Baker removes the top turnbuckle pad, rendering the bare corner cables deadly. It's hard sometimes to follow the logic of pro wrestling, but even in a world where you can get like power bombed onto thumbtacks, suplexed through a flaming table, there really is nothing deadlier than a bear turnbuckle. And Britt Baker has just exposed it. Hater whips Tony into the deadly corner, perhaps unwittingly. And after a brief exchange, Storm hits the exposed turnbuckles, making her vulnerable enough for Hater to hit Storm with the ripcord, her finisher, for the pinfall win. And Britt and Rebel celebrate with Hater in the ring and as she makes her way up the ramp. Do you have thoughts about our new interim women's champion? Well, just so you know, What happened after this is they, instead of making it interim, they said like Thunder Rosa is not going to be able to come back. And so it's not interim. She is the champion now and retroactively made Tony Storm's run with it as a real title reign. I like Hater. I wish she was not in the shadow of Britt Baker. I feel like that's very unfortunate because like Hmm. Britt Baker takes up a lot of the oxygen and Hater's extremely good. Yeah, I was very impressed with her. It's unfortunate that sometimes, like, in the matches since this, I feel like she doesn't get to get the spotlight that way. That there's still a lot of, like, oh, hey, look at Britt Baker. It's like, oh, this is... It's almost Britt Baker's title run part two. Mm. That's not what I want for Jamie Hayter. And I don't really know why it's happening, but that's kind of what the deal is. But I like Jamie Hayter a lot. And if you're like, I don't really care. I'm not really going to Google these people. I'm not interested. Jamie Hayter and Tony Storm both have amazing butts. Amazing butts. Gun to my head, Jamie Hayter's is better, but still. There's a lot left to go and it's midnight. 
We go now to the hype package for the acclaimed versus Swerve in our glory that sets up the story of the match. Swerve is a heel. Keith Lee is a babyface. They each agree that the other is a unique talent and are united in seeking the tag titles. But can they coexist? Meanwhile, the acclaimed articulate who they are in abstract, almost spiritual terms. Max Castor explains that, quote, no one's stopping scissoring. That goes on forever. Which, like, okay, like scissoring, no doubt, a fundamental part of the human experience. You cannot destroy an idea. <laughs> but a little humility. Some real inception bullshit. <laughs> no, man. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, sir, my concern is not whether scissoring is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on the side of scissoring. <laughs> For scissoring moves merch. <laughs> Boy, does it. Match number nine, Swerve in Our Glory versus The Acclaimed. Swerve enters first to his own music, wearing a weird light-up mask that provokes someone on commentary to say, quote, what the hell, <laughs> before Swerve takes it off. Money well spent. Good job, Swerve. Then Keith Lee's music hits, and he walks out. He tries to skip fist-bumping Swerve in the entrance, but Swerve pulls him back and insists on the fist bump, which Lee gives him. There may be some friction here, but if there's one thing Keith Lee and Swerve can agree on, it's that they both fucking love basking during their entrance. These two look like they are being symbolically rained on in a music video through their entire entrance. I love it. Yeah, it's very good. Just a great place to find your joy when you're a pro wrestler. Because, like, you can lose a match. You can't lose an entrance. I know. Put your soul into this. Fuck the match. Fuck the match. <laughs> Don't wrestle. Just come out. Do your entrance. Mm, mm. That's right. Say all the beautiful things about me. Hold up your signs about how great I am. Play my music. Let me do my pose. And then fucking leave. The Bodhisattva, Shinsuke Nakamura, has been trying to teach us this, but we have been deaf to his teaching. The Acclaimed enter next. Max Caster raps to their entrance music with simple rhyming couplets, one of which references Randall from Monsters, Inc. Yep. Thank you for making me see Randall from Monsters, Inc. whenever I look at Swerve in the future. It's true. He does look like him. I did look it up. I did a Google search. Don't bother, dear listener. It's true. Swerve looks like Randall from Monsters, Inc., but he's still hot. Both are sexier for this comparison. Yes. Like 100% both more fuckable for this. Megan Bob, my only question going into this was, how sexy do you find Randall from Monsters, Inc.? <laughs> um, how sexy did you think I find Randall? Extremely. <laughs> what? Oh, I, I, you've known me for how long? I know. I Sometimes it's unpredictable, but sometimes it's predictable. Commentary mentions that Daddy Ass Billy Gunn probably isn't here because he doesn't want his emotions to interfere with the match, and that Bowen's right arm is injured from his previous match against Swerve, which we covered previously, uh, previous episode. Yes, he's very brave and tough to have taken that match, but the other thing about Anthony Bowen's, I'll say it, he doesn't deserve arms. For example, almost as soon as the match starts, his arm fucking taped to shit with hot pink tape. Yeah. He starts throwing elbows at Keith Lee, which is not only pointless, as we all know, Keith Lee is immune to elbows, but also hurts his own goddamn arms. Lee then lifts Bowens up for a well-deserved powerbomb. Max Caster helps Bowens turn into a Rana. We get tags to Max Caster and Swerve. Caster beats down Swerve a little bit. Then he tags Bowens and sets up a diving double-team move that I swear to God is called, quote, 
Scissor Me Timbers. Yes, it is Scissor Me Timbers. What is the rule about hitting people's junk? Like, are you allowed to do it if you aren't aiming directly at it? Is that what the policy is? Like, <sighs> like if you're technically aiming for a thigh or like a taint, it's like, these balls are collateral damage, so who cares? That's exactly what it is. The precedent on this goes back to the uh, the classical era, I would say. 1066. The Church Fathers. St. Augustine, in fact, the principal of... <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm going to fact check this because I think I'm mistaken. I think it's actually Thomas Aquinas. There's some deep nerd shit happening right now. This actually goes all the way back to Thomas Aquinas, mm -hmm. principle of double effect. If you, with no like malice aforethought, yet with knowledge of the consequences of your actions, mm -hmm. engage in an attack that is not directed upon the ball sack, but yet has ramifications upon the ball sack, you are not held responsible for the testicular effects of your actions mm. because that was not your intent. Ah, oh, wow. This is why wrestling referees are so distracted all the time. It's like, they're not just thinking about like our shoulders down. This is like, this is mens rea. This is some deep shit. So they have to be on their game, which they never, ever are. <laughs> And that's why wrestling is a fucking mess. Thank you for looking up Thomas Aquinas so you could make that reference. Beautiful. Gold star. What's funny is that I looked up, I, I put in my search bar double effect to confirm that I was right that it was Aquinas and not Augustine. And it was already in my search history. <laughs> this has happened before. I know who I'm podcasting with. To avoid tonal clash with this silly ass move being deployed upon his crotch, Swerve gives it a silly ass sell. It was pretty funny. His only viable choice. Swerve takes back over, though, by targeting Bowen's arm, then tags in Lee and runs off to get a barricade from the crowd. He runs through the crowd, searching for the perfect barricade. It's very funny. It's like, okay, he's surrounded by barricades. Like, as soon as he gets out of the ring, he's surrounded by barricades. But he looks at them, he's like, no, no, not this one. Not this one. Oh, my God. Like. <sighs> he just knows. He knows when it's right. It's like. Pete and Pete's mom from Pete and Pete when she's looking for a place to pee. Yeah, like, doesn't everybody, like, flick through a million, like, sexy stories or, like, porn videos before you find what you're looking for? They are all functionally the same, but are they, Chris? Are they? Bob, your analogy is bad, and I need you to punish and discipline yourself for this because we have to move on. <laughs> We could talk about porn later when we're talking about other shit. We'll do next wrestling fan after hours. <laughs> no, I hard choices, barricades. <laughs> You're dangerous. You need to be stopped. You're on a podcast spree. Anyway, Swerve finally finds the barricade of his dreams, which he leans against the ring apron. Keith Lee disapproves. If there's anything that a man like this can do, a man this size, this build, shake his fucking head like nah man no not this it's very sexy it's so hot swerve doesn't listen bowens tries to take advantage of keith lee's distraction with some strikes but it turns out huge people stay huge even when they're thinking about other things and so it doesn't work lee takes bowens down bowens ends up outside where swerve tries to suplex him onto the barricade bowens reverses swerve onto the floor bowens rolls into the ring bad news keith lee is still there <laughs> Good news, he's still busy arguing with Swerve because that is Keith Lee's primary role in this match. He's sort of the Jiminy Cricket to Swerve's Pinocchio in this match. How fucking dare you? 
What? I would not fuck Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> I'm shocked. I mean, or Pinocchio, obviously. Bowens once again tries to strike Keith Lee, just in case Lee has become vulnerable to mortal weapons in the past several minutes, which he has not. <laughs> Lee lifts Bowens with his bat arm. He slams it into the mat. He splashes it. He gets a two count. Bowens tries to fight away from Keith Lee with strikes again, but a headbutt takes him down. Who would have thought? Lee and Swerve effortlessly maintain control on Bowens, including a spot where Swerve sticks Bowens' hand in his own trunks and kicks his arm yeah. to do more damage to the injured arm. Missed opportunity because, okay, attacking the injured arm is pretty good. But what if put his hand in the back of his trunks and then bounced off the ropes, then stopped and just pointed at Bowens and yelled, hey, he's touching his butt. <laughs> Why is this guy touching his butt? Uh, oh my God. Have you been studying at my wrestling school? <laughs> <laughs> the beautiful part about this is you've got two options. Number one, hurriedly take your hand out of your trunks like you're fucking caught. Or number two, slowly and measuredly take your hand out of your trunks like you just can barely stand to pull it away. Either way, it's highly incriminating. Or three, touch your own butt and look at the other person and go like, what, you jelly? You want this butt? Come over here and fucking get it, you goddamn coward. I hadn't considered, this is why we have two hosts on the podcast, because when it comes to touching butts. I know, you are but a novice. You are the authority. Swerve tags back in Keith Lee, who gets Bowens up on his shoulders. This is an electric chair drop position, but I know that's going to scare the listeners. <laughs> McCaster takes down Swerve who is setting up a double-team move, and Bowens hits a Rana on Lee. Max Caster tagged back in. He finally manages to land some offense on Keith Lee that looks like it hurts, but we also established that Max Caster cannot lift Keith Lee. Bowens tags and hits a running knee on Swerve, then a double-team move, but still only a two. Bowens almost knocks Swerve into the barricade, but Keith Lee saves him with one arm. He, like, catches him off the side of the ring. But Max Caster dives onto Lee, which puts him through the barricade. So finally, the barricade that Swerve set up, Keith Lee goes through it. Big moral lesson. Long story short, do not venture far afield into the crowd. Find the perfect barricade and then set it up. You or someone on your team is bound to get put through that shit by the unbreakable laws of pro wrestling. Bowens hits a draping DDT on Swerve for two. Outside the ring, Caster's knee is still hurt. Lee is still hurt. We get an oh, scissor me daddy chant. Yep. Oh, scissor me daddy. And... The power of prayer is soon confirmed because when Bowen's shoulder gives out while attempting a double team move, Swerve takes advantage to turn the match around. He grabs some pliers to go after Max Caster's fingers. Yeah. Finally, this is enough for daddy ass himself to rush to the rescue of his ass babies. Now, granted, Swerve avoids Billy Gunn and calls to the refs and they force Billy to the back and no harm done. But Bowen's is able to get back in the ring. Lee is still the legal man. Swerve hands him the pliers to go for Max Caster's fingers, but Lee refuses. He's a complicated man, morally gray, but when it comes to destroying another person's fingers with pliers for no reason, he's like, <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so. In fact, Keith Lee ditches the match. Presumably, he's now done working with Swerve. Swerve puts up a bit more of a fight, but soon falls to the acclaimed double T move for the three count. And that's the match. Comments on the acclaimed Keith Lee swerve. I don't know, man. Keith Lee and swerve like <sighs> there's so much sexual tension, but it's not necessarily between them. 
but there's so fucking much of it. It's really good. It's like two different kinds of doms. And they're both like, mm. no, this is how you do things. And the one's like, no, this is how you do things. And they're both like, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. But I respect the results you get enough to work with you. But it's like, mm. no, they're both so goddamn good. No, this is like high-end porn remake slash parody of My Two Dads Energy. Mm. After our final hype package for moxley versus mjf the main event is finally here Ugh. match number 10 moxley versus mjf mjf comes out first he doesn't like the pop that he gets so he runs back through the entrance do you like what trent beretta described as cartoon detective music <laughs> honestly i barely noticed mjf's music the fact that his video package is his scarf's pattern is like I don't know, man. Just I hate MJF in a gray area way where I'm like, do I hate you the way that you want me to hate you? Or do I hate you in a totally independent way that you're like, oh, yeah, I meant to do that. Like, I truly do not know what's going on here with MJF. But I feel similarly about MJF, although I will note that he comes out in a robe that I believe my mother described as like, it's like a shitty house coat. <laughs> and indeed, it certainly looks like one. So yeah, he doesn't get the pop that he wants. So he runs back behind the entrance and he comes out again to trying to get a bigger pop. It's pretty good, but you know, there are also some booze mixed in with the cheers, even in a very MJF friendly crowd, as we we're going to discover. Hard to find him, but... <laughs> MJF plays to the crowd big time. He motorboats a woman near the ramp. Is this a regular part of his entrance routine? No, it's not. So this is just like big match motorboat. Like, yeah. let me draw a little extra strength. This is like when you're <laughs> wiggling your hands when you're in the sleeper. It's like, I need all the power of the crowd. Like, give me those titties. I need their energy. Well, we've all been there. <laughs> it made me think of a thing that I heard Tyler Breeze say once about like figuring out your entrance routine so that like, if a kid wanted to play you, like, what would they do? And kids may not understand. Don't let children play MJF. If you let them watch AEW, who the fuck are they going to play? Like, somebody's going to play MJF and somebody's going to get motorboated. No, they play Orange Cassidy. There's always like a little kid dressed up as Orange Cassidy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Moxley makes his way to the ring through the crowd, as is his want, accompanied by William Regal. MJF makes a jerk-off motion during Mox's entrance, which is effective. Maybe not a nuke that we want to proliferate. Like, there's very little in pro wrestling that could not be readily deflated by a jerk-off motion. I, we do not <laughs> want to start doing this to each other. <laughs> and I was picturing, like, on commentary, <laughs> Tony Schiavone says something and somebody else is just like, oh, jerk-off motion. <laughs> Tony's like, right? that's really rude. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cute. Justin Roberts, the ring announcer, gives us full intros for both MJF and Moxley. Moxley draws booze. MJF gets an MJF chant. The crowd's allegiances are clear. Very weird to see Moxley getting treated this way. I was like, mm -hmm. what the fuck? Like, I get that they very specifically wanted this to be in a place where like, where is MJF like the most palatable? <laughs> like, where can we do this? <laughs> 
But like for them to be hostile towards Moxley, who's the tweener, like the face of AEW and has been the face of AEW since the first fucking episode, like the first episode. Jesus, I think like he and Kenny Omega like put each other through a glass table in like the VIP area of whatever the stadium was and there was a broom covered in barbed wire and all this like he has been at the forefront of this whole thing and then it's like they're going fuck you it's like this is chocolate everybody likes chocolate why are you mad at John Moxley yeah this whole thing was just enthralling for me and I have to say I think it should be foregrounded when you bring people to a place where they are specifically going to be popular. Like it reminds me of Maria Bamford's stand up special in her parents' living room. Oh, yeah. This should be a thing. This should be like, I challenge you at the next full gear to a match in my mom's backyard. And it's just like the most like home ground advantage. I think that would be perfect. Oh, God. No, the Hardys would do that shit. 100%. Like that more of that. We're just like... No, this is just like our backyard. <laughs> like my father-in-law is here. There's a barbecue going on as well. <laughs> like, oh, the best. As soon as the match starts, Moxley decks MJF with a big punch. MJF cockily sells it, rubs his chin. Moxley puts his hands behind his back, inviting MJF to fire back. Unfortunately, MJF can't capitalize because he picked his entire move set from the cheeky dickhead category. So all he has in this scenario is an impudent slap. At this point, Moxley does me a big favor with an onslaught of jargon-free offense. Elbow, chop, chop, drag face against ropes, grind beard into face. I could do this all day. If only Moxley could stay on offense the whole time. I love Moxley for this shit. Love it. I will not do this all day because the tide does turn. MJF wins a crisscross because running back and forth is a thing you can win somehow in pro wrestling. He struts past Moxley. He slaps his own butt in Mox's direction. You know, like the devil would do in a serious yeah. big boy fight. MJ, <laughs> bad motherfucker for sure. <laughs> Moxley charges in. MJF low bridges him with the ropes. And MJF acts like he's going to dive on Moxley on the outside. But Moxley ducks and there's no dive. Just MJF being a jackass running back and forth. Moxley counters MJF's devastating no contact just being a shithead offense with a choke in the corner and then he flips off the crowd and poses for them in a very heelish fashion it was pretty sexy i was into it moxley is fully wrestling heel in this match it's his only viable choice and i love it when this happens i love when faces yeah. wrestle heel for a crowd moxley does some cross face strikes on mjf don't worry about the jargon he's just clubbing him across his stupid face Beautiful. Like, think of what you would like to do to MJF's stupid face. Mm. That's all Moxley's doing. He hits a brain buster thing, which, per my notes, is his first actual wrestling move of this wrestling match. He then puts MJF in some kind of toehold, but MJF bites his way out. And Moxley, having learned his lesson about trying to wrestle, goes right back to brawling. My boy! <laughs> he hits a big suplex, gets MJF into an arm breaker in the middle of the ring. They fight over it. Finally, MJF gets the rope with his leg. Moxley clotheslines MJF in the corner to big booze, hits another clothesline. Then he grabs his belt from ringside, just kind of parades around the ring with it. Just, you know what? Sometimes in life, you got to be your own ring girl. And I respect Moxley for doing that. Like, sometimes you got to take a minute. Like, I've been working hard. Let me just like 
lift up my accomplishments, my big shiny accomplishments, just like strut around the ring in a sexy fashion. I was trying to think about what the equivalent like just regular ass life would be. What's the best thing I've done? Let me hold up my kid. Look at this. This kid's fucking great. Have you seen this kid? They're like, this, sir, this is a grocery store. You need to leave. <laughs> Megan, Bob, I am going to do this tomorrow and my kid is going to love it. Thank you. Thank you for this idea. Oh, yeah. No, Violetta's going to have a great time. But like the people at the public library are going to have some goddamn questions. MJF cuts off Moxley here, spits in his eyes. Moxley throws MJF into the stairs, then goes back into the ring to taunt the crowd. MJF beats the count. There is a 10 count here, but MJF rolls in. Moxley goes back to work on him, but MJF hits a clothesline for a double down, which is where both wrestlers are just lying there, which I know sounds like not wrestling, but is actually the most exciting part of wrestling. MJF hits a Manhattan drop. It's like an atomic drop, but inverted. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, totally. It's like this other thing, but different. Then reverse the polarity. Yeah, perfect. This is some real Doctor Who terminology. Keep going. (laughs) Moxley doesn't stay down. MJF hits 10 headbangs into the turnbuckle in the corner Mm -hmm. to cheers. The crowd loves to count and they love it when John Moxley gets beaten up. So this is they're eating this shit up. MJF charges in, but Moxley dodges. Almost hits the paradigm shift, which is his uncharacteristically hoity-toity name for his double arm DDT. But MJF counters out. MJF goes out to grab the title, kisses it, sets it down, then grabs the setup table at ringside, puts it by the ring apron. MJF re-enters. Moxley hits a cutter, then like struts. But when I say strut, you're imagining like Ric Flair does. It's like a real strut. It's like a real like legit like a shoot strut john moxley is really showing me something here about his ability to be a real asshole oh yeah not something he gets to exercise all the time but uh but he's very good at it moxley grabs mjf's hand both his hands then stomps his head the crowd goes crazy they hate this mjf tries to fight back but moxley stays in control moxley bows to the crowd to so many boos maybe a move he picked up from william regal Definitely seems like a regal-like move to bow in a heelish fashion. Moxley has MJF on the apron, tries to get him up for like maybe a power bomb, but MJF shakes his legs to gain power from the crowd. It's a very silly like I think his arms are maybe like otherwise occupied, like he's busy, so he has to. MJF has to like shake his leg behind him, like come on, come on, give me your power through my foot. It's shaking <laughs> for you, like show me your love. The crowd does manage to power him up. They clap enough to, like, bring the fairies back to life. The whole thing. Exactly. MJF reverses. He hits a tombstone on the apron. Moxley rolls in. MJF sells the hell out of his knee. Goes for a belated cover for only two. MJF trash talks Moxley while still selling his knee. Then, for some reason, the two of them go back to the apron. No idea why. They're just like, where's the last place we hurt real bad? That's right, the apron. Let's just real quick. We can't agree on much, but let's agree. Hardest part of the ring? Okay, great. I mean, sometimes in a relationship, you go to a restaurant that you're (laughs) not both crazy about, but that you can agree on. (laughs) MJF tries it again, but his knee won't do it. Moxley hits a pile driver on MJF through the ringside table. Moxley returns to the ring. The referee starts the count. MJF gets in at nine. He thinks he gets the jump on Moxley, but Moxley hits the paradigm shift for only two. Moxley kicks the shit out of MJF's injured knee Locks in a figure four leg lock. Mm. MJF struggles to turn it over. He finally does. So Moxley has to grab the rope. 
and, and break the hold. For those of you who are unfamiliar with figure four leg lock physics, it's a very complicated topic. I, I don't know if no, you've covered this on the wrestling it. fan before. Okay, great. This leaves MJF. He's slapping his knee, trying to get like the feeling back in it, I guess. MJF tries another heat seeker, but Moxley tosses him off. He chop blocks the injured knee. Again, I don't know if you've talked about the chop block. One of the most devastating moves in wrestling where you just run up behind somebody and just like kind of clothesline the back of their knee. My dog does that to me sometimes. It's rough. (laughs) I have to be like, oh, no, we're not going down, buddy. (laughs) Moxley drapes MJF's knee, his leg on the bottom rope and stomps the knee. However, when Moxley goes up top, MJF goes to the top rope to drop Moxley's crotch on the turnbuckle. Back and forth, back and forth, hammer and anvil elbows, which seem to be a favorite in AEW, until Moxley hits an avalanche paradigm shift, so double arm DDT off the top rope, but MJF barely brushes his fingers against the bottom rope, evading the pin. At this point, everybody's dazed, everybody's tired. MJF kind of like pulls himself up along Moxley's body. Moxley calls for MJF's best shot. MJF spits at Moxley, and Moxley punches him. It's the perfect encapsulation of these two. <laughs> I am Spitman. Who are you? I am Punch Man. <laughs> Big dumb punch off. And then Moxley kicks the injured knee. Hits some more strikes on MJF. MJF pulls the referee into the path of a charging John Moxley. And the crowd cheers. Yay! We hate the referee for some reason. Go MJF. How dare they? That's Bryce Remsburg. I know. It hurt me too much to say it. I didn't want to call him by name, but... In this match, he's just the referee, and MJF is like, here's this warm body, let me just push it in the way of harm. And the crowd is like, yeah, we love you, you're from near here. (laughs) MJF grabs his dynamite diamond ring from his trunks while the referee is down, but William Regal walks to ringside, tells MJF not to use it. William Regal makes a fist. MJF throws down the ring and flips off William Regal. Moxley then chokes MJF. MJF opportunistically pins Moxley, but in the scramble, the second referee who came out, the backup referee who came out to count this, gets bumped. So now we have two referees down. Moxley goes back to choking MJF. MJF taps, but both referees are currently out of order. So no decision there. William Regal directs Moxley to get Bryce Remsburg back in the game. Get get one of these referees back up and running. But while Moxley is doing that, William Regal slides brass knucks to MJF. MJF KOs John Moxley with the brass knucks yep. and pins him for the three count and the championship. MJF holds up the title after pushing the referee away and commentary speculates on how long all of this has been planned. William Regal helping MJF to win. How deep does this conspiracy go as the show ends? Megan Bob, your boy, William Regal. What the fuck? I know. I know. Don't worry, we'll get to it. With MJF? I mean... Yeah. Yeah, no. it's It was very painful to find that out. But if you love a villain, you love a villain. Like, they're going to do this shit. You just got to be prepared for it. I guess when you're hot for horrible people, sometimes it happens. It's amazing. Sometimes they do horrible things. Sometimes to you. Chris, thank you so much for that breakdown. You did really good. Thank you. I can see in your face that you don't mean it. I said too many move names, but at the same time, you know what? I did my best. You did. I know you did your best. And it look, you got through it. I asked you to get through a lot. How do you feel about this for fucking 
our pay-per-view. This would have to have been very good for me to sit through and enjoy the whole thing. And I really didn't. It was good, but it wasn't that good. No. I can tell because the first time that I watched Tony Storm versus Jamie Hayter, I was like, when is this going to fucking end? And that was about the time when I, you know, like, okay, this is like, I can't watch any more of this. I need to go do other things. But then when I came back to it, I overlapped and I watched Storm versus Hater as like the first match of my next viewing. And it was great. It was purely just that like the show had been too long and I couldn't get into the match because I was just fucking sick of watching wrestling. The show is just too long. Yep. So yeah, it made a big difference. And, you know, apologies to Jamie Hater for not immediately recognizing that she was great. But, you know, it's it's not you. It's the card. I know. She got a cute accent, too. I know you got through a lot. I'm very proud of you. You've frankly suffered <laughs> in this process. But you know what? Let's bring it down now with some sights, sounds, and feels, and then, like, send everybody back home. All right, Chris, what did your Elphys see? Over the entire course of Full Gear, you know, the biggest thing for me was honestly the blood in the very first match. I haven't watched a ton of WWE recently, but I've watched enough recently enough to be used to like the very moderate amount of blood in WWE. And honestly, I missed blading. Maybe it makes me a bad person, but like... The color that Jungle Boy got in that match really made that match for me, really sold the cage match as a thing. And the way that the camera loved it, too, the way the cameraman was. This was like pervert cinematography where it was like, oh, yeah, show me that fucking bleeding forehead. And it was it was very effective. If you're horny for blood, AEW is 100 percent for you. Yeah. <laughs> but what about you, Bob? What did your elf eyes see? I saw MJF motorboating the older female fan. And a real fucking moment of going, I wouldn't hate that from MJF and was like, ooh, I hate knowing that. I hate knowing that. <laughs> that is, mm, no, I, it does not feel good. I have to ask you. Of course you do. In light of our recent interaction on the Hard Choices Boniversary episode, mm. Mega Bob's Bar Crawl, I did notice MJF asking like kind of like having a little interaction with that woman before motorboating her which you know mjf fellow straight white man to the best of my knowledge a plus gold star for asking before you touch somebody's tits with your face the expectations are very low great job if this happens to you yes do you get off more on him doing it or telling him nah Option three, I grab the back of his head and force them into my tits. Mmm, I see. Okay. Interesting. Which is not good for like, it's not going to work with his character. Like, that's not a viable option, but it's 100% the preferred like response to that. You think you know what you want? Surprise! <laughs> Chris, what did your Vulcan ears hear? What did I hear? Let me... Uh... Commentary on AEW continues to be fucking nuts, and I have so many things in my notes. Oh, it's so much fun. 
it's just great. I just want to listen to the commentary as a podcast. It is upsetting to me that they make me watch wrestling sometimes with it. Also, if you're not aware, not just you, Chris, but like anybody, for Dark, it's just Taz and Excalibur. And it's, I think, pretty much always they record the commentary after. And so it is effectively a podcast. (laughs) It's effectively (laughs) just Taz and Excalibur watching this and just like alone in a room talking over this thing that's happening. And it is unfucking believably delicious i love it it makes me so happy every time i i always watch dark dark is so fucking delightful i think the big thing for me was tony shivani is like i don't know if he's going into business for himself on this but like his tirade on commentary against sanjay dutt the way he says it that's the thing like because it's one thing like when a heel does something outrageous i can't believe blah 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 but he just seems he's muttering resentfully about Sanjay Dutt. He's like, this motherfucker, Sanjay Dutt. I don't look at him in his his little fucking suit. Like I just can't. He's so cute. I don't. I know. I love Tony Schiavone hating somebody in like that muttering bitter way. That was my favorite thing. I don't know a goddamn thing about Sanjay Dutt, but his stock rose for me for sure based on Tony Schiavone's hatred of him. So well done, Tony Schiavone. How about for you, Bob? What did your Vulcan ears hear? You already said it, but I threw my head back and did like a real laugh, but it looked like something from a sitcom. Whenever Tony Schiavone just said, well... There's a body bag because it was like dead <laughs> silence and commentary and then from nowhere. Incisive, like, oh, man on the scene. Tony Schiavone has pointed out what is fucking happening and with such like a just I could hear the fucking head shake and also the like these kids today. Like, I don't know what they think they're doing. Like, I don't. Is this art? I don't understand it. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> Tony Schiavone's confused. I'm delighted. Very hard to pass that up. That is brilliant. I want to see Tony Schiavone doing play-by-play of MoMA. That's what I want to see. Just like matter-of-factly just telling us what he sees. Oh, fuck. Yeah, no, Tony Schiavone, yeah. Or any kind of performance art piece. Tony Schiavone calling that. Well, they're vomiting paint now. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) yes, Tony, they are. This is so good. Christopher, you've been here for so goddamn long. What in the fuck did your human heart feel after all this? <sighs> Jesus Christ. Anything? Is it still there? Is it dead? Uh, Relief? Trying to stay positive, as I always do in podcasts. I think that I want to focus on at what point during this did I get, like, why would I watch AEW? Like, what would pull me back to this? It's not exactly what you would expect. Like, I loved Luchasaurus versus Jungle Boy. To me, that's like there's a period on that sentence. I'm sure they're going to go on to do other interesting things separately, but like I don't need to see the next stage of the story. Kind of by design, I think. It's a blow-off match. Conversely, they announced during one of the little like, you know, between match like promos, like it's a best of seven series now between Death Triangle. I never need to see a best of seven series between anyone. Oh, it was pretty fun. But I agree. It was too much, but it was fun. All right. Well, I believe you nonetheless. I don't need it. Even my favorite wrestlers, I do not need to see best of seven. Even though I thought that match was great. You know what it really was? Mm. It was Tony Storm versus Jamie Hayter. It's very good. It wasn't even my favorite match on the card, but I liked it a lot. 
and I really bought into the character of Jamie Hayter and I oh, yeah. want to see what happens next with her. And if I were going to watch AW next time, like the thing that made me think I kind of would like to see the dynamite after this and like follow the story. It truly was Jamie Hayter. So, yeah, she's the one who made me feel something, a pro wrestling something about like, let me follow this story. Let me get invested in whether this character wins or loses and what happens with this championship. No, she's fucking magnetic. She's great. I like her a lot. She's been underused and I'm really glad they're starting to use her appropriately. They have a lot of really talented people. They do not always book them to that effect. Bob, what did your human heart feel? William fucking Regal. Mm-hmm. He went back to WWE very shortly after this. I feel so sad for you that, like, you didn't even get to see him doing his most shticky shtick. Because he was doing some, like, fun stuff. And he did a bit to kind of close out like what happened with the Blackpool Combat Club and all of this. It hurt a lot, but it was also very, very sweet. There was a, I think, a few episodes after the pay-per-view, he kind of like came out and Moxley was like, you motherfucker. There was a bit of a standoff and Brian Danielson was like, okay, please, he is an old ass man and legit has injuries that could truly hurt him please don't and so moxley was like all right fine i will fucking beat up your dad but what happened is like mjf like betrayed him later on and then the last thing that happened before william regal left is he did a backstage interview with tony Schiavone. who was like why the fuck did any of this happen like what's going on and he said I wanted to teach the Blackpool Combat Club the most important lesson, which is that they don't fucking need me. They're doing fine on their own. I have nothing left to give them. And like, I, goodbye. Like, I love them. And it was so heartbreaking in so many ways because it was like, he got to be here and he got to be here with like, with Moxley, who he'd done a bunch of shit with and with, you know, Brian Danielson, who he had this relationship with and with Claudio And like, he was here with like all of his boys and then it was like, okay, but I have to go because my actual son is in WWE and I I need to go be there for him. And his son's very good. I've watched his son wrestle in NXT UK and he's great. He's super compelling. He's amazing. And like, I get why William Regal did that, but it was such a like, oh, it was so fucking bittersweet because it was like, it was shoot and work. And it was like, <laughs> you are saying goodbye and you're not going to get to work with them again because you have to go to the other place. And like, they're not going to let you talk to them except on your own time. And you're not going to get to be around these people who you, you know, kind of not raised, but certainly had a big hand in shaping. And it was just like, you know, it's been real. See ya. But like, I do love you. And it was tough, but... It was very sweet that that's how it kind of all came out. But to end this on something very lovely, because there is something you missed out on, something fucking crucial you missed out on. Mm. I did not tell you about the fact that one of the great pleasures of AEW with William Regal was that he would be on commentary sometimes. I'm going to give you a link 
It has the title. You'll see exactly what this is all about. It's very important that you have this experience because you were denied it. <laughs> I'll listen to it. This is the William Regal flirting with Excalibur compilation. At the desk right now, Lord Regal, welcome. Mr. Shivani Tasman with a mask, you lovely little buttercup. I'd like to pick up your petals and rub them all over me. I'm an eccentric Englishman. I can get away with it. Man with a mask, you lovely mug. Ooh, look at you, you <laughs> rice crispy treat. You, you can snap, crackle, and pop me anytime you want, sweetheart. Alrighty, oh, Mr. Maniac, man with a mask, you cotton candy. You, I'd like to let you melt in my mouth. I would. What the hell? Oh, wait a second here. You guys uh, really have a very interesting friendship, you and Excalibur. It's uh, a tad awkward, but I digress. Nothing <laughs> awkward about it. <laughs> All right. A ring of honor. World I'm English. Change. I can get away with anything. I guess so. I guess so. Man with a mask. There we go. I've got the volume up. You little marshmallow, you. Ooh, yum, yum, yum. Of course, Lord William Regal. Mr. Maniac. Man with a mask. You're looking munchy, munchy, munchy today. Man with a mask, you little petty foie, you. Jesus Christ, I had no idea. That is amazing. You missed out on a fucking gift. Because, like, every week, <laughs> I would get at least once he would sit in the commentary booth with Excalibur, would say shit that Excalibur, as you heard his reaction, was like, it was so beautiful so special the other commentators like to some extent reacted to it and were like <laughs> going do we need to sit between you do we need to not sit between you like what the fuck um i read some fanfic about it it's very sweet i love his delight in getting away with it like imagine the joy of having this like intensely horny relationship with someone like right on mic and everybody's just like oh yeah like that's just like they're just they're just doing their thing that is beautiful but also no just like horny wrestling twitter was like no get you a man who says the shit to you that william regal says to excalibur <laughs> i miss it i miss it desperately and i'm not gonna get it anymore but like i needed you to hear that because it was such an important and beautiful part of like <laughs> the getting to have daddy on aew is like daddy's gonna do random daddy shit and like nobody here is ready for it except for excalibur who's like gamely trying to go like i'm kind of into this but also i'm like trying to do my fucking job it's no having william regal at aew was extremely special and i want to be very clear it is not because it's aew it has nothing to do with that it is just because he was getting to do a bunch of the shit that he, you know, didn't get to do anymore. So he had to go be backstage and do all the other shit. And to get him in the mix and like at ringside and doing commentary and, you know, backstage pretending to like show Wheeler Yuta that he's going to fucking fight. And to get him to like hang out with all these people that he had spent all this time with it was very very sweet and very special and i am very grateful for the time that he got to be there with those people and i miss him a lot no genuinely thank you for for giving that to me because when you talking about him flirting with excalibur i thought like 
Oh, you thought I had Bob goggles on. I absolutely did. And that is for those of you who may not have heard this or like you got to go seek this out because this is a wonderful, a beautiful, apparently one sided relationship (laughs) that William Regal has with Excalibur. It's lovely. Excalibur's wife has gone on record saying that she is somewhat annoyed, but annoyed specifically because she's like, Excalibur doesn't say shit like that to me. <laughs> like, get your game together. And it's like, I know, daddy's game's very good. So yeah, I'm gonna miss him. But I get the sense that you are done with AEW. You may not be coming back to, the- <laughs> you're gonna transfer to a different school. Maybe return to being homeschooled. I was about to ask you, actually, speaking of my my teenage days and earlier, have you watched the William Regal Brass Nux material? I have not. I think I've seen clips. I've seen the gimmick like referenced a lot to the point that's like, I can see the size that it is in his kind of mm-hmm. thing. But no, I haven't. But I sure it's very tasty. You know what? We've got some Next Wrestling Fans episodes about NXT to do if listeners can possibly believe it but once we've got a few of those under our belt i would love to take you back to the wwe episodes where william Regal is rocking the power of the punch he's got those maroon trunks with the brass knucks hit inside and he's riding those knucks to intercontinental championship victories i think you would enjoy it and i would definitely enjoy having you specifically write the breakdowns for those episodes <laughs> just me going like Then he looked at the camera, but me specifically through time, he's looking (laughs) at me. So anyway, that offer is on the table. If you want another trip in the time machine to see uh, the history of these brass knucks, these legendary brass knucks. I want you to compile a like playlist of William Regal matches and I will do breakdowns of that, of like, take me on a tour of like, I want to see him whenever he's like fucking around with Moxley. I want to see all of it because I know that he because so in the early days of the next wrestling fan, I was like, William Regal, huh? And went digging for fanfic. Nobody out there has the fucking vision. Well, okay, very few people have the fucking vision. Although Blackpool Combat Club's been very good to us in that regard. But there was some of him and Moxley and it was very like... You know, beating each other up, but also fucking. God damn, do I want to meet the person who comes from home from a CZW show and logs right onto AO3 to write some fanfic? Like, so fucking weird now. <laughs> oh, my kindred? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are meeting them. You're in the world <laughs> right now. That's true. I guess this podcast has been the process of this fucking Frankenstein being created. Now, here you are shambling around the internet like this is a i was gonna say a miracle an abomination that miles created and i'm I'm very happy to be a part of it i mean an abomination i think maybe to like what wrestling thinks fandom is supposed to be to ao3 i am perfect i am everything they envisioned i the person who was like this delicious i need more of this I will go seek out shit I don't give a fuck about in order to get more of the, like, this specific nectar I need to thrive. You're right. The villagers are wrong. Absolutely. I know. It's so often (laughs) my lot. 
Thank you so much for coming with us on this extremely long journey. It's like I put a leash on this fucking cat and just took it for a drag. But the cat like cooperated. So we're it's okay. Look, this, Kristen knows, this was a hazing ritual. But he passed. Chris passed. And now, now Chris gets to be the co-host to The Next Wrestling Fan. You've done it. You've graduated. And now, Chris, I will very graciously resume writing the breakdown so you do not have to. Thank you. Thank you. I accept the leash. And you better believe I'm going to drag your ass all over town for this. So, listener, look forward to that. <laughs> so come back in one week yes one week i know we're trying to make this thing like happen after that we go back to our two weeks but for now one week it will be a real an actual episode of the next wrestling fan the podcast that you are subscribed to will be the podcast in your fucking podcatcher mind-blowing i know we're innovators we're, dare I say, disruptors? <laughs> yes, I know. We're doing something very innovative here. So come back in one week whenever we go back to the black and gold brand and hang out with uh, Daddy when he's still rocking that shaggy hair. <laughs> Bye! The NXT Wrestling Fan is produced by Lucas Brown, with logo design by Claire Mulcairin. Special thanks to Rafael Medina for his theme song, Learn Buckle. You can follow his creative work on Twitter at EarthMofo. Also thanks to Kevin McLeod for additional music and stingers, which are licensed under Creative Commons. Find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io. We're on Twitter and Facebook at The NXT Wrestling Fan. Come talk to us. You can also follow Chris on Twitter at Megadumbcast, and Megan Bob at Megan Bobness. The NXT Wrestling Fan is made possible thanks to our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to help us out, go to patreon.com slash NXT Wrestling Fan and join our fantastic stable of contributors. They're the best. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email us at nxtwrestlingfan at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a week. I can't believe you'd keep your burp a fucking secret. <laughs> you want Lucas to go back and like CSI style, like enhance audacity, <laughs> enhance. Give the listeners that fucking burp. No, I just want to know. Like, look, I tried my best to do like a solid Liz Logan and I fucking failed. But maybe you can succeed where I failed. You're burping as loud as you can to be audible. And I'm concealing my burp so as to somehow hide it from the listeners, which is you and me up and down, Bob. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's under layers of metaphor, but one day you're going to put down your shovel, you're going to wipe your brow with your handkerchief, and you're going to realize that you've just unearthed a burn.